Today's show is about why are we here, an investigation, a discussion of the overlap between shamanic practices and healing, mystical understanding and development of consciousness, and what modern physics has to say about the nature of the Big Bang and the evolution of the universe. This will be divided into four sections because the original webinar was a little over an hour long. Hi. This is Andrew Wayfinder, psychotherapist, life purpose coach, and soul healer in Chelsea, London. You're listening to The Way of the Awakened Soul podcast, a show about finding your soul's purpose and how to use science, psyche, and spirit to guide and follow your true path in life. Tune in weekly for inspiring stories, cutting-edge science, and ideas, along with spirit healing and guidance sessions. Join the show at thewayoftheawakensoul.com to have your questions answered on the air and win a free healing or divination session for yourself. Now, let's get started. There's, there's this amazing confluence between science, mysticism, and psychology. They all tell a very similar story of the evolution of human consciousness and what role our consciousness plays in kind of the unfolding and expansion of life. And so this has a very big dimension to, you know, why am I here? But it also has very pragmatic, very personal dimensions. And typically what I see happening with people who you know, do shamanism or come into healing, they come through the door because they're in some kind of personal crisis or situation. And they need help with that. And the heart of shamanic healing is reconnecting with your soul's power, reconnecting with your soul's wisdom to make you whole. And, you know, that's the, the spiritual healing that takes place in shamanism related to any kind of, whether it's a medical crisis or a personal situation, a loss or anything like that. People come through the door and, and, and get healing and get help. But if they persist, they then find themselves doing work that's bigger than themselves. That seems to be bringing um, ancestral patterns into balance, into bringing cultural patterns into balance. And the Laika, a Peruvian Andean shamanic tradition, they have the same that you know, we're not just here to grow corn, but to grow gods. Um, and it's also, you know, that's that's a kind of mystical understanding that we we exist at different levels of consciousness. From there's a let me just take a look at the, the reference here. There's 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 a whole sort of so the lowest level is you live you live in a depraved level of consciousness, which is sort of full of appetites, yeah, and passions. The next level is accusatory, which is kind of where a medieval, self-flagellating religious person is, and any kind of person who runs around feeling bad about themselves and looks at the world through you know, saints and sinners' eyes, that's sort of an accusatory level of consciousness. Then the next level, and that's where the majority of you know, religious groups and people, we don't seem to get beyond that for the most part. Level three would be inspired where you're starting to see a bigger picture and to feel more whole, more connected. Number four is tranquil. And that's a, a form of bliss consciousness, I would say. And then, and these are, these are very old mystical terms, the seven ages of the rungs. Then there's God satisfied, God satisfying, clarified and perfect. And the general idea is you're sort of cleansing and removing the veils between you and, and direct perception, direct experience of reality. And that as you, pierce these veils of illusion and ignorance and, and that sort of stuff, you see the truth more and more clearly. Well, where it gets very interesting is where the um, modern physics, quantum physics and cosmology, 
are saying a very similar thing that I think it was Martin Reed, the wild astronomer, said basically humans, human consciousness had to evolve in the universe because the universe needs an observer for it to exist. Um, and so there's this, there's this very, you know, crazy pattern where, where the most advanced branches of cosmology and quantum physics are saying things like we live in this multiverse where the universe is literally winking in and about out of existence moment to moment going from sort of complete energy with no form to complete form with where energy is completely contained and back again constantly the universe is constantly oscillating and and i don't fully understand this stuff but it, it, it's it's yet at the same time it kind of resonates with experiences i've had while journeying yeah so anyway long story short there's this very interesting set of very similar patterns of understanding that, that why we're here is to become clearer and clearer about being able to observe the reality of things. And that doing that is not only, you know, personally beneficial, you know, you as an individual soul experience life as being less chaotic, less frightening, less overwhelming, because you feel not as a nice, warm, fuzzy idea, but as a lived experience. You feel that you're connected and part of something much bigger. And you're flowing with it. Yeah, like that. You know, so that's the promise of, of mystical practice of spiritual achievement. But it also has a um, a very, very kind of real consequence again, because if, you know, if the physicists are right and the universe needs witnesses for it to be informed, and the mystical traditions say a very similar thing that that you know, God, Godhead, all whatever form they use, needed to create, needed to sort of come out of everything and coalesce into form so that it could sort of amuse itself and discover itself. Yeah, maybe expand itself, yeah. Um, so there is this sort of wild, crazy thing happening in the background. And then in the foreground, we have, we have this kind of amazing story of, you know, 13 and a half billion years ago, there's the Big Bang. And, you know, everything comes into form in an instant. All matter, all energy all information. And, and one way of describing energy is energy is just sort of pure outward expansion. And information is what contains or directs that expansion. And so, you know, four and a half billion years ago, the earth forms, you know, into a ball of stuff and, and processes and chemistry and, and weather start to form. Two and a half billion million years, two and a half million years ago, sort of a tiny fraction of that four and a half billion years, the first human shows up. And when we first showed up, we were basically, we were the monkey equivalent of a wolf pack or an elephant herd or a chimpanzee group. You know, the, all these different animals lived together in groups. They had a hierarchy. They had, you know, rambunctious teenagers and grouchy old men and wise matriarchs. And they hunted and, and operated as a group. And the earliest humans, going back two and a half million years ago, were no different. Um, we, we, were, we were basically you know, monkeys that walked upright, and we had we had hands that allowed us to make stone tools. And we stayed that way until about two hundred thousand years ago. So three hundred thousand years ago, we discovered fire and started cooking food, which was a huge advantage because once you start cooking stuff, um, digestion becomes much easier. Uh, but for most of most of our evolution, we were a very puny, very insignificant, very threatened species. And 
you know, starting so 200,000 years ago, we have we have the modern brain. You know, basically the brain hasn't changed in 200,000 years. But for they're not sure whether you know somewhere between 70 and 40,000 years ago, the brain woke up. Physically, it was the same brain, but we learned to use parts of it in a new way. So from 200,000 years ago to 70 or so thousand years ago, we see people doing the same thing over and over and again. They're making the same tools. Language seems to be quite primitive. There's no such thing as art. We don't appear to have, we have language enough to communicate, you know, to sort of coordinate hunting the way a wolf pack would. But we weren't sitting around a campfire telling stories. But about 70, somewhere between 70 and 40,000 years ago, the brain wakes up. Tools become much, much more sophisticated, much, much more varied. We start seeing decoration, cave paintings. And then language appears to have come on the scene and, and storytelling. What's also really interesting is, is you know, 200,000 years ago, there were six, at least six or seven different types of humans on the planet. You know, there, were, there was Homo sapiens, there were Neanderthals. There was an Australasian man. And so those were all, you know, monkey-like proto-humans, but slightly different given the part of the world they were living in. So Neanderthals were heavier and stronger because they lived in the colder climates. In Asia, where it was warmer, they were much more, they were much slenderer. But the interesting thing is, is that the Homo sapiens, we, sort of won out against all these other ones. I mean, they were, Neanderthals were bigger and stronger than us. But it appears that we had the ability to tell stories. And that story making somehow gave us an identity and a way to organize so that although we were weaker than the Neanderthals, we were smarter. So that we, we eventually dominated and they, they f went the way of the dodo and we survived. Yeah. And what appears to have happened is the brain has sort of this four part structure. The, the oldest part, the brainstem and the kind of core is the reptilian part. And that's the part that does all the automatic survival stuff. It regulates temperature, and um, it, that's where a lot of the very most basic instincts and, and kind of automatic body functions take place. And then when we, we evolve to become mammals, you get the mammalian brain over that, over the brainstem, with the limbic system and the emotional system. And that's, you could call that sort of the monkey or the dog brain. That's the part of the brain that we used, you know, to, to join in tribes and groups and, and be in families. And then over the top of that, you have the, the, the neocortex, the new brain. And that's the brain that can do abstract thinking and planning and, and figure out patterns and look into the future. And Now, the thing is, we had that structure for 200,000 years, but we didn't, for some reason, we had no access to it. But 70 or so thousand years ago, all of a sudden, we're able to tap into this part of the brain, which leads to a whole bunch of consequences. Um, and, and the brain, the, this, this cortex, is divided into sort of the, the back part is very good at you know planning and organizing and figuring stuff out. And that's what I think of as sort of the engineer scientist brain. And then the fore part of the brain is the God brain, is the part of the brain that can tap into other dimensions of reality and sort of esoteric and larger than conscious information and understanding. And the reason I, I talk about this is because we see this in you know the heart of shamanic work is learning how to use that part of the brain so that you can expand your consciousness at will, tap into other dimensions of reality, other capacities, other wisdom and information, and then use it, bring it back into this dimension of reality. It also relates to sort of the four levels of consciousness. There was um, Jean Houston's an American psychologist back in the days when they were doing LSD research. She was part of 
a long-term research study. And her job was to debrief the people coming back from the trips and you know, take the notes and categorize and organize what, she, what, what happened. And she said she observed you know, basically four levels of awareness. I mean, everybody went and had the, the distortion of reality experience, the melting clocks, being in a Dali painting. And then a smaller proportion of people went to having insight into personal issues and struggles and family dramas and sort of the psychological level of things. And then the third level, which was a smaller portion of people, came back having contacted cultural archetypes, sort of Jungian-type experiences, mythic figures, coming back with information about broad cultural, historical, and, and kind of mythic levels of understanding. And the fourth and least common level were the people who came back speechless. They couldn't put into words what had happened, but they were permanently changed by the experience. I mean, quite dramatically. You know, people, people who literally could have gone into the experience, a committed Nazi, would come out, you know, like a Franciscan monk loving humanity and, and, and giving all that up. And I mean, it was, it was so pronounced that, you know, back in the day, a lot of the hippie activists would fantasize about, you know, dosing the Pentagon and places like that with acid so that they could, you know, forcefully transform consciousness. Well, and I think what's happening in part is that, you know, you're using the chemistry to access those four levels of the brain. So the first level is the neocortex, which is, I mean, the, the reptilian brain, which deals with the basic processing and functioning in the world. The second level was, was activating and waking up, you know, the higher dimensions of the mammalian social brain, familial brain. And then the mythic consciousness is up into the neocortex and the god consciousness is up into the god brain. So I think that's how all those things relate to each other. So if we go back to, you know, early humanity, you know, what is, what is shamanism? I mean, shamanism is the oldest form of culture, the oldest form of religious slash spiritual consciousness practices. And, you know, if you go far back enough in anybody's lineage, you'll come to a time and a place where your ancestors lived in the world where everything was alive. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, you have a culture where everything's alive and people are connected and part of everything in a way that we, you know, we don't really understand. I mean, one, one kind of remarkable example of that was when the first uh, explorers came to Patagonia, uh, the tip of South America, the natives there, called Patagonians by the explorers, were uh, a small tribe of people who literally lived naked, you know, practically at the South Pole. And they appeared to be very, very primitive. But one of the last members of the tribe was studied by, I think it was a priest, who's, who started compiling a dictionary of this native language. And this man had a vocabulary of roughly 30,000 words. And to just put that into context, a well-educated Oxford graduate probably has a vocabulary of 12 to 15,000 words. And this, this so-called primitive man had, you know, this huge vocabulary for an extraordinary range of experiences. I mean, there was, there was a single word that meant I'm sitting in my canoe at dawn, listening to the waves and watching the sunrise. You know, that they, they experienced, it appears that they experienced the world with, you know, shades of, of awareness that, that demanded, that created a language, a vocabulary that large. Um, you know, that they, the only reason we call them primitive is because they don't have things like, you know, stoves and internal combustion engines and x-rays. Sure. Yeah. But 
they discovered ways of accessing our consciousness and traveling to other dimensions and working with other dimensions of reality that I think have yet to be equaled. Yeah. Um, and that's was certainly you know my experience. Uh, you know, I, I come at this from I was a, I was you know an architect and a builder and an ecological designer in an early life through my twenties and thirties and into my forties. And then in my 40s, I had a bit of a kind of midlife crisis breakdown. My mother died of cancer, and I got very depressed. A bunch of stuff, kind of my, you know, a lot of, a lot of kind of life history stuff that I had been just pushing under the, you know, sweeping under the rug for years just caught up with me, and I had to deal with it. Yeah. And I did. I mean, I went through major therapy, and, you know, it was like having a part-time job, and eventually became a psychotherapist. And, you know, I was interested in spiritual things, all, you know, throughout. Um, meditation, Tai Chi, yoga. I had a kind of an awakening experience in my 20s while traveling in Greece of a kind of negative in the sense that I sort of experienced the universe to be cosmically empty and I was alone. And it was a, it was a bit of a freak out. And it just sort of reminds me of the Buddhists say, you know, there, there are two moments of enlightenment in your life. The first is when you realize you're going to die. And the second is when you realize you're, you're never going to die. So for me, the first time was, was in this olive grove in Greece, looking up at the night sky and, you know, looking at the Milky Way for the first time. And all of a sudden, I wasn't looking up. I was looking down. I was like hanging. I was on. I was sort of stuck to the planet, looking down into the universe, and feeling like just suddenly aware that I was this little tiny speck of awareness on this little rock that was hurtling through this vast, you know, interstellar emptiness. And I was about as significant to that rock as the rock was to everything else. And then, I, like this voice in my head said. I'm alone and I'm going to die. And it was, you know, it just, it sort of blew my mind. I mean, I just, it took me years to, I tried to stuff everything I could get, you know, math, science, philosophy, self-help, you name it. I was trying to stuff it into that experience. And then about 20 years later, I had the opposite experience. It was, it was when I was in that sort of therapy odyssey with my mother after her death. And I was working with a spiritual healer about once a week for about two years. And we would do, you know, wild and crazy stuff on her, on her table, removing, energy intrusions and you know god knows all sorts of stuff that i didn't quite understand at the time but i look backwards now for my shamanic training and i can sort of see what we were doing but one day we're sitting and i'm sitting in her her office and the veil drops again and the room is full of angels i mean every every cubic inch of the room has an angel in it i mean some are as tall as the room and some are as big as my thumb and every size in between um and and i sort of go holy shit i mean it's really full out there um so that you know, that was the beginning of my own experience of, okay, I'm never going to die. Um, but even then, I mean, when I, when I first came across shamanism, I just thought primitive tribal stuff, you know, feathers, bone, guys with bones in their noses, drums, rattles, relevant maybe 10,000 years ago, but not now. You know, we're modern people. We've got Zen. We've got Buddhism. We've got particle physics. We don't need that stuff anymore. You know, it's just, if I was living in the Amazon, it, it might have some relevance to my life. But, and, you know, I was very wrong because, you know, in the midst of all this, self-improvement and becoming a psychotherapist and all that sort of stuff, which all played its place and had its part in my own evolution and development, there were still patterns in my life that made no sense. Um, that even though I knew better, I wasn't always acting better or feeling better. And I saw the same thing happening with my therapy clients, that we could, we could help them on the kind of emotional and psychological level. But there was another level where these methods weren't touching. And, and for me, that, that kind of, um, I had kind of a personal crisis where, long story short, major breakup, 
you know, my fiance walked in at breakfast and said, I want you out by noon. And I kind of left, you know, just what just happened there. And she refused to talk about it. And we, we met about two weeks later to sort of say goodbye and sort things over. And she's like, I can't explain it. I just fell out of love with you. Um, but there was, there was a pattern there that had been repeating itself for years. And that's eventually how I discovered shamanism was I just, long story short, again, going back to the Laika, you know, we're not here to grow in corn. We're here to grow gods. Um, they had discovered that, you know, at the soul level, we carry wounds and we carry very old soul stories and those shape and, and, and guide our lives. They're, they're sort of, they're, they're the energetic and, and spiritual template for so many things that happen. And until you heal them and correct them, you're going to continue to replay that pattern. So let's see, where are we with all this? Yeah, so that's what, that's what, you know, that's where I discovered because basically, you know, I did four and a half years of conventional therapy that cost me, you know, close to $50,000 to get better. And I did, except that this deep pattern was untouched. Um, but in the doing the shamanic work, literally, you know, in, in a matter of a few days worth of work, I, I did the coast to coast walk in the summer of 2008 across the top of England. And I did a series of journeys for destiny retrieval, which is all about recovering you know, your soul's destiny for this lifetime and uncovered a, a pattern in my soul's story that just changed everything. So as a therapist, that definitely got my attention because literally in about a dozen hours worth of work, I uncovered stuff that four and a half years of, you know, three times a week therapy hadn't touched, didn't even know existed. Yeah. So that was, you know, so, so these so-called primitives are not so primitive. Thanks for tuning in. This was The Way of the Awakened Soul with Andrew Wayfinder. I hope you enjoyed the show and you're inspired to go live your life of meaning and purpose. Please leave a review on iTunes and make sure to go to thewayoftheawakensoul.com. To get your questions answered on the show and win a free healing or divination session for yourself. Thanks and goodbye. <laughs>